Welcome to the Venley Expert Talks, where we aim to inspire Web3 builders with great stories from great minds. I'm your host, Alexandra Ahrens, and I'd like to remind you that you can always reach out to us on Twitter, Discord, or LinkedIn with ideas for the podcast and questions for our guests. Welcome to episode 41 of the Venley Expert Talks. Today I'm joined by Kier Finlow-Bates, and we are going to talk about a little bit about tokenomics, play-to-earn games, NFTs, and blockchain as a whole. So thank you very much for joining me today, Kier. Well, thank you, Alex. Um, yeah, so if we can start out, I am very interested in this online persona you've built for yourself. So if you could just tell me kind of all your backstory, so where you're from, how you got into the space, and we'll go from there. Right, I won't go through the whole of my history because that would take too long, but uh, I'm currently <laughs> in Finland. Uh, back in 2010, I read Nakamoto's white paper on Bitcoin and found the technical concepts fascinating. I uh, didn't buy any Bitcoin at that point, which is why I'm still working rather than living on a tropical <laughs> island somewhere. Probably would be feeling bored if I'd gone that route, though. Uh, and then in 2015, the company I worked for laid off the entire Finland workforce. It's a, uh, it was a multinational company. And I had a choice to make, which is go and continue looking for work as a test manager and test engineer, which is what I'd done for 20 years, or go full-time blockchain. And that's what I did. And then I realized running my own company that you you actually have to advertise in order to get customers and get work. It's it's a shock to an engineer because you think Imagine it just happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started building an online brand mainly on LinkedIn and uh, in usual um, sort of mathematician and engineering and test engineering uh, manner, I I did this through testing, trying things out. And uh, along the way, I've picked up this hashtag and this nickname, Blockchain Gandalf. I think it was Anthony Day on LinkedIn who originally suggested it. Uh, I resisted it for two months, but on the whole, it's actually served me pretty well. And uh, yeah, so now I just kind of post about topics in blockchain that I'm interested in, uh, current affairs things, technical things, a bit of humor, a bit of quirky information here and there, because I like to be fun and and that's the thing about blockchain is it's been the most enjoyable area to work in I've ever had the pleasure to be involved in and and I've worked in things like uh, satellite navigation software and uh, stuff like uh, security so you know it's it's but blockchain is better than even those okay can you tell me why you feel that way um I think it's because if you're like me and you you know, if you're the kind of person who goes to read a Wikipedia article on something you want to learn um, about and four hours later you look at the clock and go, oh, my goodness, what's happened to the time? Um, why do I know so much about all these other topics that have nothing to do with uh, what I went to read about? <laughs> you know, you just keep clicking links. Um, uh, then blockchain offers all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's at its core, it's a technology you know, and it uses a lot of different parts um, from mathematics and computer science. So you've got peer-to-peer networks and cryptography. um, But then it pulls in stuff from economics. So it's, uh, you've got a lot of uh, sort of economics applications uh, that it can be used for. And then there's things like sociology and philosophy 
that come in too. It makes you query. As you investigate blockchain, you'll start to ask yourself questions about what is money and what is value, um, what is, uh, you know, what is involved in human beings interacting with each other. So that's what I like about it is it just, it just keeps giving. You know, the more you explore, the more you realize that there's a lot of stuff you've been taking for granted and it makes you question that. So I guess ultimately it turns computer science and economics into philosophy. Wow. Okay. Wow. Getting deep already. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you um, kind of had your own business and you've done a lot of things. I also had a peek at your LinkedIn. I know that you're currently working a lot of things as well. Um, can you tell us about some of them or maybe your favorites or yeah, right. and what your kind of your goals are with those? Um, well, you've asked me what my favorite is. So I have to mention uh, this, the Authorverse, which mm -hmm. uh, it started off at the beginning of this year as an NFT project. So I found a quirk in the way that uh, token contracts are written that meant that I could uh, give every single Ethereum address a token. And actually, initially, I uh, gave everybody 100 ERC-20 tokens. Um, then I ended up working with a, a, all people, a Corsican programmer living in Thailand. Um, and we've become very good friends over the last nine months because of this collaboration, although I've never met him in person, uh, where we issued one NFT to every single Ethereum address. And just to put this in context, there are as many Ethereum addresses. Well, it, the magnitude is about the same as the number of atoms in the Earth. So if you if you were told, find a grain of sand that got stuck between your toes when you were on a beach 10 years ago, and you think, no, I, there's no way I can do that. That is um, much, much easier than finding a particular atom in the planet Earth. I mean, that, that would be trivial compared to finding a particular atom. And, and there are that many Ethereum addresses. And yet each and every one of them has an Authorverse token. Um, then we expanded that out. I used some uh, generative art code to create a different image for each token. So uh, again, a lot of potential images out there. Most of them will never be seen, of course, because nobody can look at uh, you know, that number of, of tokens, but they can theoretically be created. So that's a fun application of combinatorics. Then uh, land in the metaverse started becoming hot or rather it had been uh, getting hot. Now it's seeing a bit of a tail off as people are realizing that uh, companies like Sandbox and Decentraland aren't really delivering something that people want. And of course, the big company suffering at the moment is Meta, formerly known as Facebook. So you know, they've, they've hemorrhaged, is it $15 billion now to produce um, cartoon-like representations of Mark Zuckerberg with no legs? So... Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't know why he wants this, but I mean, he's a billionaire. They're a bit quirky. So uh, you know, maybe it'd be better if he decided to also try and go and live on Mars with the other billionaires. But uh, that's the choice he made, to go inward rather than outward and, and halve his body. But uh, yeah, so uh, so we looked at <laughs> I got distracted there. So, so, so we made, uh, so, so we came up with this idea of using images of land and mm -hmm. um, at that point, I started realizing that people have this very 
different understanding of what the metaverse should be about to what I have, mm. which is they're really focused on the visual aspect of it. Um, whenever people say metaverse, everybody else on the planet seems to immediately think um, augmented reality or virtual reality and headsets mm -hmm. and 3D. And, um, and they talk about it being immersive, which is another thing that I find peculiar because I don't know about you, but if I read a book and it's a good book, within half a minute, I'm immersed. I, I've, if, I'm, if I'm reading mm -hmm. a good book, I, I forget that I am there. That I forget about my body. I forget about my location. I'm, I'm in the book. That's immersive. And it doesn't involve any goggles. It doesn't, it, it doesn't have mm -hmm. any pictures. Uh, it, it's just words, right? But, so, uh, mm -hmm. so why there's this idea that it has to be VR goggles on your head and why they're throwing all this money at making lightweight ones? Um, and from what I can tell, repeating the mistakes of Google Glass in that respect, that people don't really <laughs> care um, and they're going after that as the way of achieving immersiveness. I, I have a few theories. Um, uh, one possible one is that Mark Zuckerberg um, suffers from uh, aphantasia, an inability to visualize things in his mind, which is a, an unfortunate condition that some people have. In that, you know, if mm -hmm. I ask you to close your eyes and picture an apple and you do that, you, you can probably get some kind of feeling that you are looking at an apple. Some people will see mm -hmm. fantastic detail, uh, beads of condensation, you know, subtleties of shedding. Other people will just have a amorphous apple shape. Some people can genuinely not even picture a circle in their mind. Um, so I'm wondering if, um, and those people benefit from uh, virtual reality, that uh, actually having a headset mm -hmm. and being able to see stuff that they would want to visualize, it's useful for them. But for most of us, um, we are fortunate enough to be able to have a mind's eye. And so maybe it's less important to us. But as I said, that's just a theory. I'm not saying he actually does. Yeah, of course. Okay. Right. And so, you said you had a couple of theories. Are there any other major theories that stand out to you as to why that seems to be the way we're going? Well, um, I, my second one is just that it's the easiest thing to grab onto. So okay. if you look at Neil Stevenson's book, Snow Crash, he mentions that's where the metaverse is introduced. And it's this virtual three-dimensional mm -hmm. world that people enter. They don't wear headsets. They have computers that beam lasers into their eyes and actually draw the images on the back of the retina, um, mm -hmm. which I personally would feel a bit squeamish about. I'm, I hope I never have to have eye surgery because I don't like you know, things going near my eyes like that but uh, or inside mm -hmm. them. Um, but the thing is that Stevenson wrote about a virtual world that you could enter through the aid of computers and optics that was three-dimensional and photorealistic because he's writing a story, right? And mm -hmm. maybe he was even thinking about possible movie rights later on. So, you, you know, when you're, when you're, mm -hmm. if you're writing a story, you provide a description of the scene usually. So you open a book, you'll see descriptions of trees and houses and streets rooms, what furniture they have. You know, mm -hmm. the writers want to build a picture in your mind. Um, and so, plus probably in 1992 when he wrote it, that seemed really cool. But for the 
technologists who are trying to now make this a reality, um, they kind of pick on that aspect and they ignore all the other stuff he wrote about. Um, there's the mm -hmm. whole aspect of the uh, economy of that internal world. So he, in, in, the, in Snow Crush, he talks, the main character, hero protagonist, owns a piece of land very close to the center of the metaverse. So it's like having a, a plot of land in, in Soho, London, or uh, you know, mm -hmm. so, somewhere in the center. Uh, the hero protagonist is incredibly wealthy in that respect inside the metaverse, but he's living in a, a storage locker in the real world with a, um, mm. uh, you know, with a rather odd musician, I think, if I remember rightly. Um, but anyway, so it, it, there's this kind of juxtaposition, uh, which, again, is part of writing a novel. You want to mm -hmm. sort of have some internal tensions. And, and again, it's just those kind of things get overlooked for the thing that you can kind of demonstrate immediately. And, and, mm. and I guess this is, this is part of the problem with the metaverse is people are much quicker to have a concept that they understand something if it's presented to them visually uh, than um, if you have to explain some kind of mechanics that are going on underneath. So explaining mm. a virtual world economy is much harder than showing people, saying to people, put this headset on. Anyone who's pitched mm -hmm. to a, a VC will know this. Right, you, you you have your PowerPoint presentation, um, and you've got a mock-up of what the interface to your program is going to look like. And some people look at it and think, think, oh well, they've done it, you know. And you're mm -hmm. kind of like, no, I just drag some squares around on a, on a in, in draw and label them. Um, you know, there's masses of back-end stuff that we have to code up. It's a little bit, it can't be much. I can see it. So I think it's a matter of that kind of mm -hmm. stuff coming back to bite us. Okay. That makes sense. So I guess if I could follow through on that, if you were given all the money you could require, all the man hours, the greatest minds on your team, what would your version of the metaverse look like if you could build it or well, act like? Or <laughs> <laughs> So I think you've hit on what the real problem is here, which is that mm -hmm. the metaverse from what I um, take away from it, is about interoperability and community and a shared experience. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you, if you look at, if you look at your question, you've done the equivalent of saying, if you had all the money, what movie would you make? And then uh, and, and <laughs> if you're making a movie, you have a, you know, you get a script writer to write a script. You're the director. You're going to say where people are going to stand, what they're going to say, how it's going to look like, what the feel of it is going to be. But it's your vision as the director. When you go and watch Star Wars, you're seeing George Lucas's vision of a uh, sci-fi world in another galaxy. If you go to see a Quentin Tarantino movie, you're getting his take on, you know, would it be cool to have 70s retro stuff and lots and lots of violence with some witty dialogue in between? So you, you, you're kind of picking a different director's viewpoint of the world. Um, and the so the issue there is that uh, if you gave me all the money and said, what would my metaverse be? Well, it would be me probably putting out masses of grants to different you know um, groups to start working That's on this. That's a fair this. answer. Yeah. I yeah. certainly wouldn't want to make uh, the meta mistake of thinking that I could be the director 
of the movie entitled Metaverse. <laughs> that's just not going to fly. So hand it out. Okay. Yeah. So great. You've just asked me what would I do if I got a lot of money. And my answer was I'd give it away. <laughs> <laughs> and therein goes back to the, uh, yeah, if you had Bitcoin at the beginning, mm-hmm. <laughs> wouldn't have made a difference, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, no, it's a very interesting answer. Based on that, can I ask, do you consider yourself a D-Gen? I, I keep looking up what the definition of a D-Gen is, and I'm not really sure I fully grasp it, but do you okay. need to understand what a D-Gen is in order to actually know what one is, in order to be one? Um, I mean, you know, I have a, I mean, uh, what, what do you think a D-Gen is? Define a D-Gen and I'll tell you whether I am one or not. Oh boy, no, I don't, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, myself included. Um, but I guess, would you consider yourself kind of a a Web three native, and you're in every sense of the term, and um, trying to keep Web three and the decentralized aspect as pure mm-hmm. as possible, maybe. Right. Um, well, I, on a basic level, I have a bunch of NFTs in various wallets and a bunch of different cryptocurrencies. Um, not vast hordes of them, but uh, you know, substantially more than the average person on the planet who has zero. So there's that aspect. Sure. Um, <laughs> as for decentralization, I'm. I think when we talk about decentralization, we're missing the focus which is, to me, the important okay. thing is censorship resistance. Decentralization is a, is a means to an end and not an end in itself. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, it, uh, it's sort of... When, when people kind of go decentralization maximalist, um, then they start sounding like the, uh, um, that tongue-in-cheek uh, quote from Lemmy from Motorhead, where he said, every instrument louder than every other instrument is the Motorhead sound. Um, and so it's kind of like mm-hmm. when they, they get obsessed, everything must be um, everywhere else. <laughs> it's kind of, it's got to be so decentralized that you, you sort of think, well, what is this going to achieve? Um, I mean, decentralization is a mechanism whereby you can stop the abuse of centralized power but the abuses that mm-hmm. you're trying to stop are boiled down to censorship. So in that sense, it's it's a mechanism for reducing the amount of censorship. And by censorship, I'm not just talking about um, libraries in South Carolina not allowing To Kill a Mockingbird to be put on the shelf or something like that. I'm talking about um, things like uh, you not being allowed to spend your own money in your bank account because... You don't actually mm-hmm. own it. The bank does. And I, I had a personal experience mm-hmm. of this. I was on holiday in Egypt and my bank decided that my card had been stolen. And therefore, on the first week of my holiday, I couldn't get any money out. Uh, and I was frantically on the phone. And nobody wants to spend their first day of their holiday on the phone to their bank manager. Mm-hmm. Well, not my bank manager, a person at the call center. Mm-hmm. We no longer have bank managers um, uh, trying to get access to their own money now the bank does this to protect you but uh, sometimes they go too far and in fact they have gone too far in cases where banks have actually said you cannot spend money on these things we're going to censor you from so they had some banks refused to um, honor 
uh, credit card transactions to buy cryptocurrency. <clears throat> uh, mm -hmm. Similarly, people who are working in the cannabis industry or the adult entertainment industry, let's call it that, um, find it very hard to get bank accounts. They, they may be doing something that is completely legal in the state that they are living in, mm -hmm. but because it has a uh, what some people consider an unsavory aspect to it, um, they they find it difficult to get access to financial services. And this is in the banked section of the world. We haven't even touched on mm -hmm. people who are living in countries where banking services are virtually non-existent. So, um, so the thing about decentralization is it's a mechanism that can help you overcome these kind of uh, this censorship. It, it does have a flip side, which is, of course, that it enables things that some societies would not like to have happen. But uh, mm -hmm. in general, I tend to fall on the side of less censorship rather than more because we tend to go too far over into the too much censorship side of things. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so is that kind of what your ideal Web3 landscape would look like is minimal censorship, um, but maybe it's still there and more access mainly? Well, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because uh, I don't want Web3 to end up being one huge, massive sort of free-for-all that anybody can say anything about anyone. I mean, what's what's the site? 4chan, I think, is, you know, I mean, right. you, wouldn't want to, yeah. you, know, you wouldn't want it to be a massive version of that. Um, so, but on the other hand, maybe people should have the right to, gather in their own spaces to, you know, um, to express themselves the way they see fit. And so if you're not happy with a particular aspect, you just don't go there. Um, it, it's hard because there are some things that we do legislate. In general, I'm all for the, you know, be, you being able to say what you want to say, think what you want to think. Um, but we do have legislation mm -hmm. to say, well, these are the limits that we as a society as a whole have drawn up and you have to abide by them. And then, people push against them so i'm i'm not hit by that problem of having to push against them so much because i lead a fairly conventional life but i do recognize that other people suffer so it's it's a difficult question we haven't solved it in the real world i'm not sure that the virtual world will sure. solve it more other than giving you the opportunity to connect up with like-minded people in an easier manner which is what the internet did right in the 1980s mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You'd be sitting in your bedroom as a teenager wondering, am I just weird for feeling this way? Now you can go on Google and say, no, there's thousands of other people out there who feel the same way as me. And they even have a bulletin board and a logo and a name for themselves and stuff. And so I think that that's a good thing. Um, I think a lot of misery that uh, kids had in the 80s is gone to be replaced by a whole other load of problems associated with the fact that now there's all this um sort of influencer public um i think role models is the wrong word to use for them but basically they're presented with potential role models that are mm. unattainable and uh, photoshopping the way mm. they appear um, but maybe the metaverse uh, and web3 will solve that in that anybody can have their own avatar so you can all look the way that you want to maybe looks will come less important because of it who knows but that kind of stops away off in the future Sure, sure. How intertwined would you say 
tokenomics or or the economy in general, I guess, is intertwined with what Web3 is or will be? Well, I think the interesting thing about token economies is the fact that I was thinking about this the other day. So in the real world, we have our standard um, economies, standard financial systems. We have currencies dictated to us by um, central banks um, with the blessing of governments. And we're kind of stuck with what there is there. And you or I cannot have any real influence on how these things work. We we experience the economy we, in the same way that we experience a movie. Um, we just have to live through it and mm-hmm. hope that it's a good one. Um, whereas what Web3 economies offer is the opportunity for us to actually create our own. So now we're moving away from... Um, being presented with a movie to actually being told, well, here's Minecraft or here's Roblox, but you can go and build your own stuff within it. So you've got a a framework that you have to operate in. um, But within that framework, you can start experimenting and trying stuff out. So, yeah, I think the the underlying blockchain-based economy aspect of Web3 is highly important for it. And I think it's it's something that offers us a great opportunity to experiment with economics in a way that has never previously been possible. And therefore, I'm surprised that universities and governments aren't throwing resources at it, because here you have a sandbox where you can actually try out fiscal policy um, without accidentally plunging mm-hmm. 100,000 people into starvation or... Um, homelessness um but they seem to mostly be wanting it to either go away or um saying that it's terrible that's always a good indicator that something is actually uh um potentially very very fruitful it's when the uh incumbents say that it's a bad idea yeah fair enough okay um you said that there's things that you think should be tested out or could be tested out within these token economies. Do you have specific ideas? Um, I, not anything that I can talk about at the moment. I'm looking into a few things, but they're, uh, I have okay. to work them through and they may actually have value associated with them. So uh, I'm not going to blurt them all out at this point. I give a fair amount of stuff away. <laughs> fair enough. Um, in LinkedIn. I can't, I can't. I can't show all the ways that all my magic tricks are done. Um, I have to keep a few of them <laughs> back for future shows. So uh, um, at the moment, it's it's interesting to me at the moment watching how various economies are initially succeeding and then fading, failing. And the other one is mm-hmm. studying the signs of non-sustainability within token economies. So you you have this – we have a couple of problems – well, a couple of problems. We've got hundreds of problems in the uh, DeFi and crypto um, space. But uh, one particular one is there's an awful lot of scams, but there's an awful lot of people who are sincere, but what they are producing has the same structure as a scam if they're not careful. So there's intentional scams, and those are bad, and, you know, boo, get rid of them, we don't like them. There's also a bunch of projects that uh, look like the underlying idea is good, but the implementation is copying the same structures over and over again, and they result in mm-hmm. uh, eventual collapse because their whole economy is built on more people coming in and buying it 
and it becomes a uh, akin to a pyramid scheme. You know, if you can't keep piling those tiers mm -hmm. on underneath, feeding more in, then it eventually collapses. Plus, the money is just moving up the pyramid, so the people at the top are doing very well. And uh, and I think some projects inadvertently, just because they're copying what has gone before, fall into these traps. And so the question is, how can you build economies for token projects that don't experience massive booms and collapses, but actually grow in a sensible, sustainable manner? And of course, economies have the same problem. Um, and we haven't solved that in the real world. We still go through cycles of boom and bust and massive financial collapse and bailouts. And uh, the, you know, we, we seem to have to hit the reset button every 10 to 15 years in, uh, in our economies. So there's something wrong there. And you kind of wonder how many times mm -hmm. does that button have to be hit before they actually think of perhaps fixing it. But with token economies... Yeah, I, I think pe people are sort of chipping away at individual problems within them, trying to uh, solve them. And uh, as I said, I can't talk about the specifics of what I'm working on at the moment. Um, but you could just go and look at any token-backed project and look at their tokenomics papers, and you can start seeing, okay, this is where they've taken this from, this is where they're taking that from. You can start questioning each line you see in it. Why have they made that decision? Uh, part of the problem is that sometimes the only reason they made that decision is because they copy-pasted from a previous project. Um, but if they actually provide some justifications for why they made the decisions, you can learn a lot. And and until it's tested, you can't even be sure whether what they're saying makes sense or not. So you may see something, you may disagree with it, but then if the project succeeds, then it was the right decision. And similarly, something may look great on paper, and then it all goes horribly wrong. And, but that that's common in economics. We we just saw that with the uh, recently ousted Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK, Quasi uh, Kwarteng. You know, by all accounts, mm -hmm. a brilliant guy, um, mm -hmm. and one of the shortest serving Chancellors of the Exchequer that we've had. So his, all his brains didn't matter because the the markets don't care about brains; <laughs> they care about a whole bunch of other things as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah, the UK is a whole different issue, I guess, right now. Well, but... I don't live there anymore, so I can <laughs> yeah. kind of look in from the sidelines with amusement. But, uh, yeah, it's it's not it's yeah. not pretty, but that's just my personal opinion. You know, I, everybody else out there is entitled <laughs> to their own one. So don't get upset. Of course, of course, no, no, no. Um, yeah, so in your your answer there you kind of pointed out that there are obviously some that are building these token economies as a scam but then there yeah. are some that are definitely trying to build something good is there anything or any tips that you could give on like how to maybe build in fail safes or how to check your work when building these economies yeah well i think the first thing is don't just go to another project and look at the table of numbers that they've provided and copy paste it into your own white paper and then tweak some of the numbers to make it not obvious mm -hmm. that you've copied it <laughs> uh, because it sort of becomes a bit of a Chinese whispers exercise in that case um, where each um, I don't know why that game is called that it's probably not allowed to call it that anymore I don't know we call it the telephone game now <laughs> the telephone that's a much better um <laughs> Much better name for it. There's no need to pick on one let's, billion let's people. Let's go with on the that. Yeah. yeah, we'll go with that. So apologies mm -hmm. to the 
Um, the telephone game. Um, uh, yeah, good name. Uh, especially if you had used telephones in the 70s or 80s, because they were awful. Um, now they're pretty clear. But anyway, I get sidetracked so easily, don't I? Um, yeah. yeah. So then you end up with these projects that are copied, projects that are copied, projects, and you sort of... and. I bet people are going to have fun in the future going back and saying, oh, look, you know, they have that number there because of these guys. And you can trace it all the way back to that individual project. And they pick the number by rolling three handfuls of dice and then multiplying it by a thousand. So, uh, you know, it's, I, I remember reading um, some articles on why Satoshi Nakamoto picked 21 million um, for the cap for Bitcoin, for example. And, mm -hmm. Um, he or she or they actually did have some reasoning behind it. Um, so that, that's that's an mm -hmm. interesting one. The, the first thing to note is that there's not 21 million Bitcoins. Um, there's uh, 21 million times, and what is the number of decimal places for Bitcoin off the top of my head? I think it's 10. Anyway, the unit is much, much uh, smaller, and it's just a group of them are called a Bitcoin. Um, and uh, Nakamoto picked it on the understanding that eventually um, he, uh, they were thinking in terms of dollar parity for the subunits. And then there's the second thing that the amount may get halved each time until eventually it tails off, and then stops. And it's those two features that together suggested that a number like 21 million would be a good one. And so, but it could have been 42. Could have been, uh, you know, ten and a half million. Um, maybe a uh, hundred billion would have been too much, and maybe three would have been too little. And and you see that in the um, in the in the projects where they just copy the numbers. And then the second thing is really look at what your token is supposed to be doing. And that's something I see missing a lot. Is actually, you know, what are the? Uh, and there should there's probably going to be more than one aim for your token. It's going to be serving a purpose. It's um, is it meant to accrue value over time at a you know at a rate proportional to how well the project does, which would make it an investor token, or is it something that people are going to spend in order to gain services or items like NFTs? Um, in which case, it's going to act more like a currency, and uh, these kind of things. And sometimes the uses or the purposes of the uh, tokens are get confused or they're in conflict with each other and that's never a good sign because you know it's um, I'm trying to think of an analogy off the top of my head here but uh, it's basically if you try to make a tool that can do everything so it's like I want this one tool and it's got to be able to remove screws and cut wood and open paint cans and put staples into the wall um, you know, you're going to end up with a, um, well, a pretty horrible thing to use or, or a Swiss pocket knife, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I don't know many people who carry around Swiss pocket knives. Um, and it's kind of, ultimately they do everything sort of not as well. I mean, a Swiss pocket knife yeah. is great if you need to do lots of different things, but we don't. I don't have 20 Swiss pocket knives in my cutlery drawer. I have knives and forks and spoons. Um, <laughs> right? So, uh, Fair enough, yeah. So think very carefully if your token is being a um, is, is being a Swiss pocket knife when all you need is a, a spoon. 
And now I'm thinking of Alanis Morissette for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there a way that you could explain or kind of (laughs) recommend that these people could test these economies before launch, ideally? But (laughs) yeah, well, you you can you can run simulations. There's all sorts of software out there. A lot of it free for um, simulating. Uh, what is going on. Uh, so, I mean, it's tricky because you're trying to predict how a population is going to behave. And you can do mm-hmm. the sort of deterministic things um, and make some nice charts. And you can run some Monte Carlo simulations where you say, well, let's say I've got a population of 100 million and each person is going to behave in a random certain way within parameters. What's going to happen? Um, the problem with simulations is they're not very good at simulating the unexpected, the black swan events or the shock events. Um, and you, so you, you you can't sit down and you, a human being has to sit down and say, well, what would happen to our economy if, and then you start proposing more and more outlandish situations, one of which might come true. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you, what would happen if the treasury of the project was hacked and 80% of our funds were stolen. What would happen if, uh, you know, the vampire attack happened on our protocol and uh, we lost 80% of our users overnight? Would would the remaining 20 still make for a viable ecosystem or would that cause a death spiral? Um, what, what you're often looking for is are the things that you're concerned about going to be negative feedback loops or positive feedback loops because if they're negative feedback loops they'll stabilize themselves again but uh, often in these kind of things you end up with these positive feedback loops like a a run on a bank right where because people sense that the bank is going under they go to withdraw their money that confirms the suspicions of the others that the bank is going to go under so they go and withdraw their money and before you know it the bank is surrounded by people trying to withdraw their cash and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and so th- those are the mm-hmm. kind of things you need to be looking out for. And uh, But what triggers them is the difficult thing. I mean, when you look at real-world economics, <clears throat> in hindsight, it's always clear, oh, yeah, they were behaving like idiots. Um, <laughs> and, <clears throat> you know, I mean, people were rel- – if you look at the 2008 financial crash – people were relying on the ratings providing by ratings agencies you know um to assess the viability of various financial institutions um the problem is that these ratings reports were commissioned and paid for by those very institutions so it's sort of like saying you don't if you ask people to self assess themselves um some of them are going to lie and say they're brilliant um and to be honest, the kind of people who will lie and say they're brilliant are exactly the kind of people who end up working on Wall Street. So, uh, you know, it's not surprising mm. that uh, they lied about themselves. And But you only realize this stuff in hindsight. Sure. Okay. Um, how would you or would you say um, that gaming and play-to-earn games in particular are involved in this conversation? Is that necessary is that good bad how do you see that going in the future well it's 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 not necessary or good or bad any more than mm-hmm. that a, a game is necessary or good or bad um well i suppose maybe games are mm-hmm. necessary human beings have 
have played games <laughs> since the beginning of time. Um, well, not the beginning of time, but the beginning of humanity. Anyway, I imagine that uh, it's it's a kind of one of those core features of human beings, a part of how we um, make models of the world. It, it, when you think about it, it's not mm-hmm. surprising. Human, one of the abilities that we have is to imagine what the future might be like, imagine what an experience that somebody else is having might be like. And from that arises the, well, rather than making these hypotheses about the real world, I'm going to do them for entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. So... So games are necessary, I suppose, in that they arise from one of our fundamental capabilities as human beings. Um, the I, I I made videos about blockchain and games back in 2016 or so. It seemed to me it was a natural fit. And mm-hmm. I've just become more convinced over time that blockchain and is going to become more and more important in games on the basis that it gives you ownership over digital stuff out of the control of other parties. And at the moment, I know that a lot of gamers are very skeptical about NFTs and cryptocurrencies in games. Um, And I can understand why they feel that way, because a lot of the gaming industries have evolved to become value extraction from players. So the a lot mm-hmm. of the when when I first got into computer games in the eighties, they were often written by one or two, usually guys. Um, I can't think of any female game writers who are famous from the eighties. Um, so things do change for the better because they exist now. But they were typically written by one or two people, and uh, and those people were writing them for out of love of the game, and it shows in the product mm-hmm. that they produce that the. Um, Mike Singleton didn't write Lords of Midnight in the 80s, my favorite game from the 80s, um, because he wanted to become rich or because he wanted to build a huge company um, or because he wanted to scrape personal data about people. He wrote it because he loved fantasy and he liked strategy games and the computer was a way of doing those in a new, exciting way. Um now we see a lot of games companies where the focus is on doing masses of A-B testing to work out how we can get um, an individual player to spend two cents more on um, per hour that they play. Uh, and mm-hmm. and it's, it's kind of the love of producing the games is pushed to the side as it becomes more and more corporate. And again, it's not unexpected. It takes large game, it takes large software houses game design uh, development companies to produce these things. And there's a lot of money in it. It's a magnitude higher than movies, which are mm-hmm. a magnitude higher than books, which are, sorry, music, which is a magnitude higher than books. So it's it's the biggest entertainment industry we have now. And uh, mm-hmm. um, so, of course, it's going to go that way. It's become, when there's that much money at stake, it becomes cutthroat. Um, but sure. the nice thing about the creative world is that occasionally something sneaks through. You know, the big movie studios spend millions and billions on making movies, and yet two guys take a camera to the woods and produce a, uh, an indie <laughs> hit. Um, mm-hmm. Same with writing, same with music, and it's the same with games. Occasionally, somebody just comes up with something that you can code up in a couple of weeks. And the mechanics of the game are so good 
that uh, uh, that it just takes off. And I'm thinking of things here like uh, I think the most recent one I would pick on is uh, Wordle. Right? Really simple concept, mm-hmm. you know, Wordle. You got five letter mm-hmm. word, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something that could have been written in the eighties, and yeah, it's True. keeping lots and lots of people enthralled. Then your question is, how do we monetize it? Right, that immediately comes in. So, mm-hmm. um, so back to the original thing, and, and the theme of today is obviously me getting <laughs> sidetracked. Um, so. I had an experience, or rather my son had an experience, where he he didn't realize that his phone was set up to pay for things through the mobile subscription. It's called mobile, um, uh, mobile subscription pay. And he never bought stuff until I gave him a, a, a Google Play card for 10 euros, and he loaded it onto his phone. Mm-hmm. And then he started buying in um, Roblox and Clash of Clans and... Um, I can't remember the other games. There were about four of them. And he was amazed at how much stuff he was getting. Like, you know, he actually came back to me two days later and said, thank you for the play card. I got to buy so much. And I was like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Until I saw the phone bill at the end of the month, and it was for 500 euros. Right? (laughs) Um, And uh, so we complained. And the mobile phone company uh, refused to refund it because on page four of the 14 pages of terms and conditions, it said that when you get your account, (laughs) mobile subscription pay is enabled and it is up to you to disable it. And they said, go talk to Google because they run the uh, Google Play site. Um, I don't know why they said go talk to Google because any interaction with Google uh, when it comes to Google Play is through a series of a twisty maze of online um, forms, each one subtly different from the next, but none of them providing you with the right fields to fill in your complaint. It's 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 like some um, Kafka-esque form-based nightmare. Um, and after completing about 20 forms, I finally tried to get in touch with the software companies. And uh, so that was uh, Supercell... And I can't remember the company. Is it Roblox actually is the name of the company as well. Um, and the result of that was they cancelled my son's gaming accounts. Supercell and Roblox just cancelled mm-hmm. the accounts. Roblox gave us one euro 98 cent refund. So thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the other one just said, yeah, um, mm-hmm. your son's not 13. So your account is cancelled. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, it's Peggy 3 on the game thing. That means the content is uh, suitable for three-year-olds. But you have to be 13 to play. They're quite happy to take your money if you're under 13, right? Mm-hmm. But if you then complain about it, it's like, well, you shouldn't have been playing it in the first place. So, um, so and mm-hmm. the thing that tops it off is that we lost all the items he bought. At least if they'd been NFTs, mm-hmm. they would have closed our account on the game, but we could have got two, three, maybe 350 euros of the 500 back by selling it on an an Mm -hmm. NFT marketplace. But they're not NFTs. They are created and destroyed at the whim of the gaming companies. And when gamers recognize Mm -hmm. that, they realize that enough of them have these kind of experiences. And these experiences are going to get more and more common as the financial stakes get higher and higher and regulation comes in and stuff. 
then gamers are going to wake up to the fact that there's these kind of injustices going along uh, on all the time. I've seen several people on LinkedIn who've had a similar experience with their kid or with their experience in games. Um, but we're a minority at the mm -hmm. moment. But eventually, people will realize this is a real risk, which is something they don't think of at the moment. And that is why true ownership of the things that you buy in games is so important. In the same way that, mm -hmm. you know, when you buy physical, at least when you buy physical goods, you have the goods at the end of the day. Um, with these mm -hmm. virtual items, kids today get amazingly attached to them. I have a whole bunch of kids myself, and they've been very educational in making me understand that to them, these virtual things in the games are a virtual skin in Fortnite is just as important to my six-year-old as a, um, a figurine of that same character mm -hmm. in that he's got on his shelf. They're equally important. He doesn't care that one is something he can hold and the other one is a digital representation on a TV screen. Identical as far as he's concerned in, in level of importance. Um, but mm -hmm. the company can't take away his plastic doll, but it can take away his digital mm -hmm. skin. And that's what I would like to see change, that he, he'll have that. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I mean, this definitely, definitely makes sense in kind of the, the pay-to-play sort of mm -hmm. situation or... Um, because you buy items the free to play, play, but then you have to. Yes, yeah, free. Because yeah, free to play sure, sure. is never free. Right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> right, that's, that's, right. It's a, you, you end up buying. The aim is that you will buy stuff, um, or yeah. you uh, And the fact is, you are putting time in. So if you have managed, you know, it's mm -hmm. just as. It's not just the money. You may have put a hundred euros into the game over a half a year, but you may have put a thousand hours. And if you've spent, if you spend mm -hmm. a thousand hours trying to put together a ten thousand or hundred thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, and just before you've completed it, someone tips over the table, you're upset. And in these free-to-play games, it's the same kind of thing that you could wake up one day and find that the thousand hours you've put into your game are lost because your account is. And it doesn't matter that you haven't paid money; you've put your life into it. And and sure. for some people out there, sure. these things are are a kind of life. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the um play to earn, learn to earn, run to earn, whatever, those kind of games and economies? Well, I think it's an interesting idea and one that's been implemented obviously in some cases. Uh mm -hmm. I'm I'm guessing that the people who designed these games were not thinking in terms of swathes of people in the Philippines switching to do, playing them to make a living. Um, and the press has made a big deal about this, that you know, what, 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 have, what have we created? People are playing knockoff versions of Pokemon games in order to make a living. Um, and... My initial gut feel to that is, yeah, this is terrible. But then I thought a bit more and thought, well, most of what most people do for a living is pretty pointless. You know, we have a there's very few people who are doing jobs that actually um, are of any real significance. So teachers and doctors and nurses clearly are doing something of great value. Um, but having worked in a lot of large technology corporations, 
I saw a lot of people, and occasionally I was among them, who were just turning up and going through the motion to collect our paycheck. And you would look back at the end of the month and you'd say, well, that was a waste of time. And as early as the late 90s, I remember where there were sort of 10 of us working on a project and we all knew from day one when we were signed it that it was going to get canned. Hmm. And the question was, is it going to get canned in six months or 18 months or 36? But it's going to happen. And you turn up and they write the code and you test the code and we set up the computer hardware for doing so. And lo and behold, 12 months later, management says, no, this project is not going to fly. It's cancelled. Right. So weren't we doing the same as those people in the Philippines playing play to earn, admittedly for probably a hundred or a thousand times as much money as they were earning. But uh, I think a lot of what people are doing in their lives mm. is um, is they have to go through these motions. So the question is, can we guide these things so mm-hmm. that they don't cause us to fall into this hamster wheel trap? And can we learn something from the play-to-earn games to help us avoid creating hamster wheel traps in real life? Because the learning isn't just one way. It's not just real life informing virtual worlds. Virtual worlds should eventually inform us of better ways to do stuff in the real in the real world. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Um unfortunately I feel like we should probably start wrapping up, but I've <laughs> greatly while, enjoyed yeah. this conversation. Um I do want to give you the opportunity here to put in a plug if there's anything that you want to shout out. Oh, I think I'm going to bend down here and pick it up. Here, um, what I given that opportunity, how can I turn it down? I have a book. This is the Italian version. <laughs> I don't know why I picked that one up. So anybody who's okay. Italian, scansa tevi brocos arriva la blockchain. It's, uh, it's a really good translation written by an Italian friend of mine. And please excuse my Italian accent. Um, and then uh, there's the English version. Move over brokers, here comes the blockchain. It's a uh, 321-page book on blockchain, covers everything from the fundamentals to some really interesting and uh, useful stuff in the more technical areas. Um, But it's readable by non-technical people because it uses analogies to explain things in understandable manners. Um, And people tell me that it's quite amusing in places as well. So it's also entertaining. It's got everything. (laughs) Um, Here's an analogy between punk music from the 70s um, and blockchain to compare industries where people took power away from the incumbents in the industry and then the industry took it back. Um, So uh, because punk music and uh, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum have a surprising amount in common. So buy that book and find out why. I like it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. I like, I've definitely enjoyed all of your analogies you've given me today. So I'm sure that will be great fun. I actually (laughs) thought about the ones in the book rather than making them up on the spot. So they're even better in the book. (laughs) Good. Um, Then very last question, who should we have on the expert talks next? I will say that I do already have Anthony Day booked. Okay. Um, have you uh, considered uh, Mauricio Magaldi? I haven't, but I'm right. happy to. He uh, he works for 11FS. He's a Brazilian guy, um, and he's a drummer and a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And he's <laughs> also really amusing and witty 
and very insightful about stuff. Plus, he's got a, a delightfully dry sense of humor. So uh, I would suggest him. Wonderful. Then, yeah, I'll definitely reach out to him. I am a little disappointed in myself that I didn't get some more Lord of the Rings uh, references in here today. I should always be Lord of the Rings. I'll tell you something. If you read Lord of the Rings, you'll see that the characters within it never actually talk about the book, right? So, right. So in that sense, we're kind of, we're being true to the nature of the book and that we're inside it and therefore we're not breaking the fourth wall and talking about it. It's not that kind of book. Very true. Very true. (laughs) Good. Thank you again so much. I really, really appreciate your time. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you, Alex. If you like today's episode, please rate, follow, or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you really like our content, join our Discord community, where there's always good conversation, exciting news, and live AMAs. Thanks for listening.